Valentine's Day, film fans, and welcome into the Second Day Film Podcast, the official podcast of the Second Day Film Club. It is Thursday, February 14th, 2019, and love is in the air. <laughs> Couples around the world are currently embraced in romantic splendor, <laughs> splendid quality time together. It's all sickeningly sweet. <laughs> I'm your host, Brandon Champion, and, and currently I'm not doing any of those things. I'm hanging out with my co-host, Mr. Evan Dean. Uh, happy Valentine's Day, bro. I saw you had a, a nice little date last night. Yeah, my wife and I, we uh, we decided to go to Dave & Buster's, you know, a little low-key, you know, but uh, but that's quite all right. Uh, I had a fun time, and uh, and then, of course, I'm spending Valentine's Day with you and the SDFC. Yeah. So this just shows our dedication. To yeah, God. and of course, we love you. You love us on social media, so we'll take it. I'm not going to lie. I'm a little bit of a Valentine's Day curmudgeon, you know. <laughs> I think it's kind of an overrated, commercialized holiday made up and promoted by greeting card companies and <laughs> retail stores. Uh, but hey, to each his own. You know, I don't. I don't feel like I need a special day to acknowledge the people I love. No, fair enough. And uh, when I went to Meyer to pick out a card, like the cheapest one I could find was like six bucks. Point, so I'm just like point what? proven. Point proven. Anyways, I digress. Uh, coming up on today's show, Dean and I are going to be previewing the 91st Academy Awards, uh, which are coming up on February 24th. Uh, not this Sunday, but next Sunday. Um, and we're also going to uh, just briefly discuss the show, and I'm going to make a few picks from some of the major categories, see if I can improve on my on my sterling record from last year. Huh. Um, and also, both Dean and I will be sharing our thoughts on some of the new films that have been coming out, uh, including M. Night Shyamalan's highly anticipated film, Glass. Uh, but before we do that, like we always do, uh, we want to we want to tell you how to get in touch with the show. Yeah. Uh, Dean, you want to tell them how to do that real quick? Yeah, we've got Facebook, we've got uh, Twitter, we've got Instagram, we've got uh, SoundCloud, iTunes. You can listen on both of those uh, accounts. We've got pretty much uh, you covered everywhere you can go. And if you could do us a favor, as I always say, go and uh, go and. and Tell your friends to like the page. We'd appreciate that. And before we dive into the Academy Awards, uh, you know, kind of along the same the same page, um, you put together your top twenty five films of two thousand eighteen, which is the pod you just did. And I gotta say, uh, it's a great listen, and it's a it's a good listen. Uh, you know, when it comes to the Academy Awards, because so many of those films are on there. I did want to ask you though, briefly, how tough was it to narrow down in order? Those 25 films, because there were so many good ones. Yeah, it wasn't easy. And honestly, some of the films I left out, I felt bad leaving out. Like, ones that were 26 through 30 or even up to 35, they just sort of just missed the cut. Yeah. Um, like I said before, it's sort of, you know, we rate movies 1 through 10 here. We don't really use decimals. But, uh, you know, it's sort of like a mental decimal system as to which film I bumped slightly ahead. Um, you know, like I said, it was it was especially tough between Green Book and Into the Spider-Verse. Those yeah. were the two movies that I enjoyed the most in the theaters this year. Um, so really, it could have gone either way. You know, I don't want people to pay so much attention to the rankings and just sort of highlight as many. I just want to highlight yeah. sort of as many movies as possible. No, that was good. I liked it. You went through them quick, and I, I was happy to have you see you have Green Book at the top, because that was a film I gave a great review to, to earlier in the year. Yeah, so. Green Book. We'll see if it comes up a little bit later in this show. All right, let's get to it uh real quick since it is valentine's day roses are red violets are blue let's talk about movies without further ado <laughs> oh god <laughs> 
<laughs> All right, as I said, the uh, 91st Academy Awards are coming up here shortly in a, in a couple weeks. Um, as I said, I'm going to make some picks here in a minute. But uh, before that, I just kind of wanted to, to briefly touch on some of the talking points that are going on uh, coming into this year's awards. And one of the, the main ones is uh, this, this popular film category uh, that was adopted and quickly discarded by the Academy uh, to, quote, examine and seek additional input regarding the new category. Basically, uh, nobody associated with film thought, quote, popular film category uh, was a great addition to the show. Um, so what did you think? What were your thoughts when this originally came up? Or I know well, we briefly discussed it on one pod a long time ago, but... I thought it was an attempt to... Uh, bring you know a wider viewing audience uh, to the Oscars, right? The Oscars has gotten a lot of criticism for being kind of uptight and snooty and selecting films that the masses haven't seen. So I always thought that the the goal with that was to uh, give the people, you know, the actual people, maybe the everyday people that are seeing film, uh, a little bit more of a say and acknowledging them. So you would have liked to have that category? I, I'm not sure, but but I think that, that I like the idea of trying to make it a little bit more relatable. It does feel a little uh, stuffy at times, uh, the Academy in general and the Academy Awards, so I appreciated that attempt. Now, I, whether they were good movies or not, I think that's maybe the debate at hand. Yeah, I mean, we, we never got to see which movies were would yeah. have been nominated because they got rid of it so quickly. I think it's kind of a double-edged sword. You know, I, I actually thought it was a decent idea to, like you said, try and change the perception of the Oscars being so stuffy. Um, but at the same time, calling something a popular film, doesn't that kind of discredit the films that are nominated in the other categories? I mean, it, it's sort of like a, a shot at them, I would feel like. I guess the solution is don't be such prudes and, nomi and, and nominate films like The Dark Knight or Mission Impossible Fallout this year when they actually deserve it, you know? Yeah. I don't know if you need to have a whole other category saying they're popular films. How about you just be a little bit more open and receptive to certain genres that you've been avoiding yeah and time. maybe they have black panther was nominated for best picture so that was perhaps a step in the right direction though we've talked about how that was more than a superhero movie for many reasons mm -hmm. but so we'll see you know if that's something that they look at again i'm not sure yeah again that that is it's kind of a moot point at this point because yeah. it's not gonna happen this year uh, another big talking point coming into this year no host uh, which is something that I'm actually happy about. Uh, I, I feel like it's always a big deal when it comes out, you know, who's going to host? No, Ellen's going to host. Uh, you know, uh, uh, Jimmy Kimmel's going to host. Um, but when the show actually starts, I feel like it's kind of a non-factor. I mean, of course, they come out at the beginning and they do the big monologue yeah. and they make fun of people in the audience and the nominees. And that can be fun sometimes, but, but usually I feel like it's just awkward. And I know it's completely unreasonable and ridiculous, but I'm literally sitting in my living room in West Michigan watching a show that's going on in Los Angeles, and I literally feel awkward. It's, like, cringeworthy when the host is up there making fun of these people. I know that's ridiculous, but, like, I, I honestly kind of like that there's no host. It kind of seems like a waste of time to me. Well, I think what I wonder is, will this shorten the runtime at all? <laughs> um, we've seen people critical of the show because of how long it is, but we've also seen, and I, I noticed you tweeted about it or retweeted um, uh, one of the filmmakers who, you know, basically fought back against eliminating certain categories to save time. Mm -hmm. That's been something that's kind of up for debate. And I don't know if that's, if that has anything to do with the host or the lack of a host, but that's also an issue. They're, they're all things that are being done to try and shorten the show. Yeah. I mean, no host. Uh, and that sort of leads into my next point. Um, is they're going to announce some categories during commercial breaks, uh, specifically best cinematography, 
Best Live Action Short Film, Best Film Editing, and Best Makeup and Hairstyling, which will be presented and speeches will be given during the commercial breaks. Now, I understand there's going to be live streaming where you can watch those in real time, and they're going to try and play the speeches back later in the show, so I'm not exactly sure how that's going to go. Mm. Um, but, yeah, you mentioned the director. It was Alfonso Caron, who yeah. uh, is a director who is nominated for Roma. Uh, Roma has 10 Academy Award nominations this year, and he's the director of it. Uh, he tweeted this out. Uh, in the history of cinema, masterpieces have existed without sound, without color, without a story, without actors, and without music. No one single film has ever existed without cinematography and without editing. So, valid point there from one of the best directors working in the business now, if you ask me. Yeah, I, I agree, but I do think that, that taking that away is the Academy acknowledging, like, look, the most common viewer of, our, of, of the Oscars doesn't fully understand or appreciate why that film was one for cinematography or one for editing. You and I can appreciate that. But again, I think the average watcher, the average film watcher and the average person who's going to watch the show cares more about the other categories. Yeah, the average film watcher, they're totally sitting on the edge of their seat for best uh, documentary short and best animated short. That's why we have to have those in there, you know? No, I, I'm yeah. being facetious. But, no, I get it, uh, yeah. You know, I agree. Uh, it should be said that Corone is nominated for cinematography, uh, which is one of the categories that is being shown uh, on commercial break. So maybe, you know, a little bit of an ulterior motive there. Perhaps. In wanting it to be on television. Um, but, you know, I guess there's no perfect solution here. I think we all agree that the show needs to be a little, sh little shorter. It was yeah. closing in on four hours last year. Um, and, I, and I think they are at least trying to find ways to do that. Uh, but it's obviously been somewhat divisive among the film community and the actual filmmakers within the business. Yeah, I mean, look, you have people who have long wondered, you know, or, or you know, how do we make this shorter? And who's still staying up by the time they finally get to the biggest awards? I mean, you are, I am, but people have turned it off long before then. So I can I appreciate that they're trying to address it, but also understand that it, it, there might be a rocky road to figure out exactly how to shorten it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, we'll see how it goes when the show yeah. actually rolls around. All right, so now I'm going to go on record with picks here. Uh, last year I got 18 out of 23 correct. Um, so that's going to be tough to beat, I think. Um, but Evan, I'm going to toss it to you to sort of introduce. Uh, I'm going to you know, go in a little bit more in depth with the big six categories, and then I'll just list off my sure. picks for the other ones. Um, but I'm going, to, I'm going to toss it to you to sort of lead, read the nominees for the big ones. So yeah, yeah um, you obviously have made a great effort to see as many of these films as possible. I haven't quite done that, so I'm going to hold off on picks. I don't think I've got quite the perspective of every film. Um, that I can. So uh, we'll start off here with Best Supporting Actor. And uh, here are the nominees for the film and the character. Mahershala Ali uh, as Don Shirley in Green Book. Uh, uh, Adam Driver as Philip Flip Zimmerman in Black Klansman. Sam Elliott as Bobby Maine in A Star is Born. Richard E. Grant as Jack Hawk in Can You Ever Forgive Me? And Sam Rockwell as George W. Bush in Vice. So who do you have for this and why? Uh, it's going to be Mahershala Ali in Green Book. I, I think he's going to be a runaway favorite to win this. Um, I'm pretty confident in this one. I mean, he's yeah. so good. We both saw Green Play or Green Book. Uh, his inter interplay with Tony Lip, played by Viggo Mortensen, is fantastic. Um, I love how he's so reserved the entire movie, and then there's that one scene in particular when he just explodes and reveals all his insecurities about not being able to identify with the poor black people or his white peers and i think he's just amazing in that uh his delivery throughout the movie 
the close-ups on his face. I mean, the camera loves Mahershala Ali. Yeah. Um, just basically in anything he does, but he just makes this role so easy. Um, and I think he's going to be a runaway winner in this category. Yeah, I, you know, I've already said most of what you just said on previous pods. I agree. I, I think it was a great performance. What I did wonder, and I had said this uh, during the Golden Globes, is I said, you know, I almost felt like he could have been nominated for Best Actor. And I think it's interesting sometimes. You'll notice that with these supporting nominees, it, sometimes the, the character will be heavily featured in a film, and sometimes they won't be featured much at all. I saw A Star is Born, and Sam Elliott is not that heavily featured. Mahershala Ali has so much more screen time. So it's interesting to me sometimes what they qualify as a supporting actor versus just a best actor. So, all right, next up is uh, best supporting actress. We've got Amy Adams as Lynn Cheney in Vice. Marina de Tavira as Sophia in Roma. Regina King as Sharon Rivers in If Beale Street Could Talk. Emma Stone as Abigail Masham. In The Favorite, and Rachel Weiss as Sarah Churchill uh, in The Favorite. And I remember you saying, Champ, when you reviewed The Favorite a few weeks ago, you thought there were three amazing performances, and all three got nominated, including two for supporting. Yeah, uh, this is a tough category to pick. I'm not real confident about this one. I actually suspect it's going to be Regina King from uh, If Beale Street Could Talk, uh, but I didn't see that movie, so I can't pick her. Uh, you know, I, I, I just feel like that's weird if I pick someone I haven't seen. Yeah. Well, um, well, why do you think that she would win? Uh, I don't know. I've just heard things. a lot of buzz that it's, okay. she's really amazing in that. Okay. But I'm going to go with Rachel Weiss from The Favorite. Um, she plays uh, the person who is the favorite to Queen Anne in the beginning of the film. And so much of the movie deals with how she deals with this incoming threat to her status, uh, which, of course, is, is Emma Stone. Um, she plays this confident, stern uh, bitch in the beginning of the movie, for lack of a better word. She's kind of the queen's right-hand woman. She's ordering men around. She's openly insulting them. She just exudes this confidence, and Wise portrays it so perfectly. Um, but by the end of the film, we see her get a bit, little bit more beaten down. And what I think she really does well is this person that we sort of disliked so much at the beginning of the film... Um, ends up being someone that we actually feel sorry for on a certain level by the end of it. And that's a testament to her acting, um, that our feelings toward her can change over the course of a couple hours. Um, so that, that's my pick. Um, but like I said, King seems to be, ironically, the favorite. Yeah, and, and it's interesting, you look at this category, you've got four really well-accomplished actresses, and then you've got uh, the woman, uh, Marina de Tavira, who stars in Roma. You, you always have a few of those nominees who... It's kind of like a breakout role, um, and they're not well known. So that's all. I always kind of keep an eye on those those nominees as well. Uh, best actor here. Uh, we've got a lot of really familiar names in the acting world uh, for best actor. We've got Christian Bale as Dick Cheney in Vice. Bradley Cooper as Jackson Maine in A Star Is Born. Willem Dafoe as Vincent Van Gogh for At Eternity's Gate. Rami Malek as Freddie Mercury in Bohemian Rhapsody, and Viggo Mortensen as. Frank Tony Lip Valilonga, <laughs> butchered it again, in Green Book. So who do you got for Best Actor? I'm going to give it to Remy Malek in Bohemian Rhapsody. He, I said it when we reviewed that movie. He just perfectly encapsulates who Freddie Mercury seemed to be. He has his cadence down. He has this sort of quirky, weird uh, way of speaking down. Um, I just think he fully embodied the character and sort of brought to life who Freddie Mercury was for people who 
you know, maybe like us who were not around to see him uh, around it. And like I said in the in the review of Bohemian Rhapsody, he does a great job of portraying this outward confidence throughout the movie. Like he doesn't care what people think; he's just being him. But then there are certain points in the movie when he's all alone and he's drinking and he's just calling random people just because he wants to chat with someone. So I think he does a good job showing the duality and the different personalities of of Freddie Mercury. So I'm going to give it to Remy Malik. Yeah, I've got to I've got to see that movie. That's on my short list right now. Best actress we've got. Yalitza Aparicio, or Ricio, uh, as Cleo de Guerra, Cleo Gutierrez. Sorry for the Spanish uh, mispronunciation. <laughs> you didn't know this was going to be a Spanish class. Right? Yeah, right. Uh, she's in Roma. Glenn Close as Joan Castleman in The Wife. Uh, Olivia Coleman as Anne, Queen of Britain, in The Favorite. Lady Gaga as Ali Campana in A Star is Born. And Melissa McCarthy. Uh, a common comedy actress uh, as Lee Israel and Can You Ever Forgive Me? Who you got? Uh, this was a tough choice for me between Glenn Close and The Wife and Olivia Coleman in The Favorite. I'm going to give it to Close in a close battle for her role in The Wife, uh, which I actually just saw a few days ago. Um, she plays this devoted and reserved wife who has given up everything to support her husband. Um, who is receiving the Nobel Prize for Literature. And so the movie kind of follows them on their journey to Sweden to receive this award, and it sort of flashes back to their life together throughout it. She does an incredible job balancing the facade of being a devoted wife throughout the early portion of the film, where she's outwardly supportive and happy, and she's been married to this guy for decades. Um, but you can just see it in her eyes and her mannerisms that she's in a lot of pain. And that there's this fury buried within her. And by the end of the movie, it comes out. And, and it's just she just does it. It's a tour de force. I know that's like a cliche way to, mm -hmm. to, to say it. But she really is. And she just feels like a very real person. And, and sort of like Ali in, in Green Book, um, she just makes the role look easy. So uh, a lot of people saying this is Glenn Close's best performance in a long time. She's been nominated for seven Academy Awards. So she's not new to this. Sure. Um, but I think that she's going to get another one here. Should be noted as well that uh, your two top picks there, Glenn Close won for drama, the Golden Globe, and then Olivia won for musical or comedy, the Golden Globe. So they've each already won a yeah. Golden Globe, and now they'll be facing off in this. All right, so next up, we're going to do, uh, we're getting to the, the real big time uh, categories here. We're going to do Best Director, and we've got Alfonso Cuaron uh, for Roma, Yorgos Lanthimos for The Favorite, Spike Lee for Black Klansman, Adam McKay for Vice, and... Powell Pawlitskowski for Cold War. <laughs> I don't. I also don't do uh, Russian names well. Either. Is that Russian? No, no, that's Polish. That's Polish. It's a ski, so he's got a. He's Polish. It's a, it's a ski. <laughs> okay, apologize to Poland and Russia there. <laughs> yeah. uh, Alfonso Caron. Again, uh, I feel like this is a runaway. Uh, I talked about Roma a couple pods ago, but his touch is all over this movie. Um, and I also mentioned that he's the nominee for cinematography, so that's yep. just adding to it. Um, it's such an intimate portrayal. It's so singular, and the shots and the framing that he does are, are so specific to the movie. Um, I mentioned he's the cinematographer in this, so all the tracking shots and the lingering long shots um, are all his doing. Uh, it really puts us uh, in the head of this maid and the specific world that our main character is living in day by day. And I just think he created this intimate world and this intimate story, and I think he's going to easily win this. Spike Lee might maybe be the, be the other guy that could win this, I think. Uh, obviously, a director who's been around for a long time and yeah. has done a lot of good movies. Um, but So maybe he's like a dark horse that, that could sneak in there, but I'm going to go with Alfonso Cuaron. All right, best picture. It seems like we've got a different number of nominees every year now, now that they've expanded it from five to... 
whatever. Um, so we've got eight this year. Uh, let's go right in alphabetical order. So Black Panther, Black Klansman, Bohemian Rhapsody, The Favorite, Green Book, Roma, A Star is Born, and Vice. And uh, obviously the biggest award of the night. Who do you got for this? Well, Green Book was my number one movie of 2018, so I'm going to give it to Green Book. I, I think it was the, a super enjoyable, crowd-pleasing movie. We've already talked about how Viggo Mortensen yeah. and Mahershala Ali have great chemistry. I just think it was a great movie. I suspect it's going to go to Roma, so I think I might be pur purposefully picking the wrong movie here. Yeah. Um, Roma seems like the, the leader in the clubhouse. It's getting so much buzz, and it's just such a powerful movie. But, I, you know, that seems like such an Academy thing to do. We're going to give it to the foreign... The, right? the Spanish black and white movie on Netflix, but, you know, not the crowd pleaser Green Book. I mean, but I'm going to pick Green Book. I want to stay consistent. It was my number one movie. Yeah, no, it. I can respect that. I was going to ask you that because what you might think is the best movie um, might not end up necessarily being the best picture. Did you even have Roma in your top 25? I did, and it was just outside it. Yeah, so, but, you know, I think that says a lot about how stuffy, again, the Academy can be sometimes in picking films that many people haven't even heard of. So we'll see what happens. Uh, I like that you went, you know, you went with maybe an underdog there. Yeah. Um, so obviously that's the big six, but you've done predictions for all 23. So who do you have for everything else? I'm just going to read these off real quick. So, you know, we, we're, we're, we got to get to some reviews here. Yeah. So best original screenplay, I'm giving it to the favorite. Uh, best adapted screenplay, I'm going to give it to Black Klansman. Uh, best Animated Feature Film, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Which is an awesome category, as you yes, said, multiple times. absolutely loaded this year. Best Foreign Language Film, Roma. Uh, best Documentary, I'm going to give it to Free Solo. Animated Short, uh, I'm going to give it to Bao, uh, which is the only one I've seen. It's the short before Incredibles 2. It was really good, so uh, I feel pretty confident about that one. Live Action Short and Documentary Short, I'm guessing. But Live Action Short, I'm going to go with Marguerite. And documentary short, I'm going to go with Black Sheep, just because uh, I like that Chris Farley movie that's named Black Sheep. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> best score, Black Panther. Loved the score in that movie. Yeah. It was amazing. Um, uh, original song, I'm going to give it to Shallow from A Star is Born. I feel pretty confident about yeah. that oh, one. Yeah. Cinematography, Roma. Um, as I mentioned that one already. Costumes, I think The Favorite is a pretty strong contender there. Same thing with production design. I also think The Favorite's going to win there. Hairstyling and makeup, gotta give it to Vice. Christian Bale is almost unrecognizable as, as uh, Dick Cheney in that movie. Uh, editing, also Vice. That is a wacky movie that is all over the place, and it kind of almost was a little bit too much for me, but it was when I went back and thought about it. The editing was pretty remarkable in that. Uh, sound editing, I'm going to give it to First Man. Uh, the only Oscar that I have First Man winning, which is a movie that I really liked. Yeah. I thought that got kind of snubbed in a lot of things. Um, sound mixing, I'm going to give it to A Star is Born. Uh, like I said, basically a musical. Uh, visual effects, Avengers, Infinity War. So we'll see how I do. Like I said, I was 18 out of 23 last year, so we'll Not, see if I can do better than that. Yeah, I'm surprised that Mary Poppins wasn't... Uh wasn't nominated for some of the, the sound categories. I know production design, but that just surprised me looking through the list. But there you have it. Uh, 18 is, is your mark to beat, which is pretty good. Yeah, last it's going to be year, tough, so. I think. But anyways, that's the our Academy Awards preview. We'll obviously revisit this uh, after the show on a future pod and, and see how I did and discuss some of the things we liked and disliked. Uh, should be a, maybe a different kind of show this year, so looking forward to discussing it further. All right, moving on to a uh, few reviews we have for you here today. Uh, Evan, what have you been watching lately? Yeah, so uh, I actually uh, just watched this film today. It is the latest documentary from well-known 
documentary filmmaker Michael Moore, and it's called Fahrenheit 11.9. This came out uh, a few months ago, uh, end of 2018, and the plot line on IMDb is filmmaker Michael Moore examines the current state of American politics, particularly the Donald Trump presidency and gun violence, while highlighting the power of grassroots democratic movements. That's a nice way of putting it. Uh, I'm going to describe to you the cover of the, the film, the poster. It's Donald Trump golfing towards the White House with uh, an explosion above the White House. And inside the explosion is the title of the film and Tyrant, Liar, Racist, A Hole in One. Sounds very uh, balanced. Not biased at all. Yeah, so Michael Moore, as you know, as the public knows, is as far left as left goes. You can't get much farther to the left than him. You know, he's, he's well known for, I think, doing, you know, in some cases, kind of some noble work. At least having a, a noble point to what he's trying to do. And, you know, he fights for the little guy, the disadvantaged. Fights against corporations, politicians, big business. Even from the beginning, when he uh, was trying to get after uh, Roger Smith, the uh, CEO of GM in, in the film Roger and Me. You remember that? Mm -hmm. That launched his career back in 89. So he's always had kind of the same attitude and has always uh, definitely leaned way, way left. So what this film does really well, I think, is it highlights a couple of things in particular in American politics. First, he tries to answer the question of how Donald Trump scored this upset and became president. And as Moore explains it, look, it's not as much about what Republicans did, but it's about what Democrats did. And I think that that's true. Uh, while Trump was hosting rallies in swing states in the days leading up to the election, Hillary was hosting like private parties with big time donors. There's also the Bernie Sanders X Factor support base. He had a huge support base uh, uh, heading into the primary and they, those voters didn't turn out for Clinton. Uh, many were upset with how things played out at the national convention. They felt like the party had a more of a say than the people. And that's the main focus for Moore here. And I think he does a really good job showcasing this. He feels, he feels that democracy is under attack. He's critical not only of Trump, but also of Hillary Clinton, critical of Bill Clinton, even critical of President Obama. Uh, you know, he, he says that, you know, the concern with the Democratic Party uh, are the leaders that they've lost touch with the people they represent. Represent, excuse me. What else he does really well in this film is to highlight what happened as a result of the Trump win. And I think you've seen it. You're a journalist. You know, the in American uh, public has seen it. You know, him winning has kind of galvanized these outsiders in the the Democratic Party. Uh, people like Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, Rashida Tlaib, to name a couple. They're both interviewed in this. It also focuses on the youth movement in politics, specifically work done by the survivors of the mass shooting in Parkland, Florida, which coincidentally was one year ago today. Um, so there's also time spent focusing on the Flint water crisis, which kind of carries that same theme. Government leaders not listening to the concerns of the people. Michael Moore is a, a Flint native. Exa exactly. That's his hometown. So the movie is, is funny. I mean, at times it's hilarious. If you're able to watch it objectively, I think it's really funny. I think what Moore does really well, and he's done this forever, is take serious issues and add his comedic touch to what he's trying to achieve. Uh, for example, he literally drives a tanker truck of Flint water to Governor Snyder's house and sprays it in his driveway. 
my God. So there's kind of some sideshow stunts that he does to kind of hammer home his point. That's part of making a documentary the way he does. Have you seen this or any of his other films? And what do you think of him? Uh, I've heard of it. Honestly, I haven't seen too many of Michael Moore's films. Of course, he made Fahrenheit 9-11 about the George W. Bush presidency. This is just... Uh, the flipped numerals. Uh, I know about Michael Moore. Uh, he's out there. He's buffoonish, depending on who you talk to. Or he's a patriot in the yep. other eye. Uh, I can just see a lot of people getting really pissed while watching this movie. Which segues well to the rest of what I have to say. It's super controversial. Uh, at one point, they, he, they're showing a Hitler speech. And it's Hitler talking, but you're not hearing Hitler. You're literally hearing Donald Trump at one of his rallies. <laughs> So, there are actually some startling comparisons made, I'm serious, um, between Hitler and the Trump administration. Um, It's a movie that's going to piss a lot of people off. Uh, And, you know, I I will say my criticisms with the film, and this is true for a lot of Michael Moore's films, is that it's kind of all over the place. It's messy. Uh, Unorganized at times. You know, he drives home his main point during the last 15 minutes, but I think he could have done a better job along the way in connecting each of the storylines. And and another thing, as I kind of wrap this up, this isn't a criticism, but it's something to be aware of. This is infotainment. Emphasis on the tainment. Mm -hmm. Uh, As someone who works in journalism, you as well, I was able to recognize and identify, even in Flint, some of the liberties Moore takes, some of the generalizations he makes. I don't think that... He is blatantly outright lying at you know at various points throughout the film, but it's important to recognize he's presenting it from his opinion. It's a movie, not a newscast. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, though, I think it's thought. I really do, and, and I, other critics have said it's one of his best as well. I think it's thought provoking. I think to fully appreciate it, you have to go into this movie with a certain perspective. It's not saying you have to take everything Moore says as gospel, but just at least go into it trying to understand the messages he's trying to convey. And I think if you can do that, you'll get something out of it. I gave it a 7 out of 10. Yeah, sounds like a movie that you just need to go into and watch with an open mind and just sort of get a kick out of it. And don't don't be too serious about watching it. But, I but I do think, like I said, it's thought-provoking, and I think there were some points he actually made pretty well, uh, you know, despite the buffoonery, mm-hmm. as you described it at times. Um, and look, this is very relevant for our time. So anybody... Who, I don't know. I, I know there are certain viewers or listeners we have who probably think he's an idiot and it's all nonsense. And I urge you to at least watch and try, try to understand where he's coming from. Even if you don't agree, I think you can take something from it. Shockingly, Fahrenheit 11.9 not included uh, in the best documentary feature <laughs> category uh, at the Academy Awards. But that's Fahrenheit 11.9. How did you watch it? Uh, it's uh, actually on Amazon Prime. Right now, so you can uh, you can go check it out there. And I think I think Moore did win an Oscar at one point. Um, Bowling for Columbine, I think he won. Um, so he's done good work, and and you know this is not his best, but probably not certainly not his worst. All right. Well, moving on to something completely different. Uh, a movie I saw last night is called Cold Pursuit. Uh, this movie is directed by Hans Peter Moland, who is a Norwegian director. Um, the plot summary on IMDb, a snowplow driver seeks revenge against the drug dealers he thinks killed his son. Uh, this movie stars Liam Neeson and Laura Dern, <laughs> and yes, I know that sounds like the plot summary to literally every single Liam Neeson movie since, uh, what, like Taken, give or so. Um, this movie is actually a remake 
of the Norwegian film uh, Order of Disappearance, which was also directed by Molin. So that's sort of interesting. He directed this movie in Norway and then came to Hollywood. This is his Hollywood debut and made basically the same movie except with American actors, uh, or Neeson, who I believe is Irish. Um, anyways, as I said, and from that plot summary, it literally sounds like every single Liam Neeson yeah. movie ever. Revenge. Yes, revenge, uh, the, you know, the Liam Neeson vengeance movie where he's, uh, you know, trying to, to destroy everyone that has wronged him, and I will, I have a certain set of skills, and yada, yada, yada. Um, ironically... Uh, this movie is not like that at all. It's not what I expected at all. Uh, yes, it is a movie about Liam Neeson taking revenge against those who have wronged him, but he's not like he's not this super adept, amazing killer. He's actually over his head in this movie. He's sort of like an everyman who's trying to take vengeance on these people, um, but he doesn't really know how to go about it. He's hmm. sloppy. He doesn't. He does things in weird ways. He's just sort of improvising. He's not like an all-knowing presence. And the thing that caught me even more off guard, is this movie's a comedy. It's a dark comedy. It's It's got as much comedy in it as it does action. And I thought that was hilarious. It really actually worked. I cannot believe how much I actually enjoyed this movie. Um, uh, of course, this movie, ironically, uh, had the worst opening weekend ever for Neeson. Um, and that probably has to do with, with the controversy. If, if you haven't heard, he uh, made some comments about... Um, how a family member was raped by an African-American and for a while he just walked around and, and wanted to kill black people. He, he said this in an interview and uh, it was really just overly honest and it came out bad. He went on Good Morning America and kind of cleared stuff up and it seems like it's kind of, you know, washed away. But uh, like I said, it's clearly affected the box sure. on this because it's yeah. his worst opening weekend ever for a guy who's been in a lot of movies. Yeah. And the thing that stinks about it is it's probably one of his better films in a long time. Um, like I said, the Dark County is amazing. Uh, when this movie starts, I was worried because it's bouncing all over the place. You know, there's random people popping in and out. You're like, wait, who's this? There's no structure. Um, and I was like, what is this movie? Like, what is going on? But ultimately, as it went on, I realized it was it was kind of its thing. There's this dark humor scattered throughout that I didn't expect at all. Um, characters pop in and out almost automatically. So, like, the scene will jump from nowhere to, like, a couple random characters. that, And this is, like, an hour in the movie where we haven't seen these two characters at all. And they'll have a whole five-minute scene of them just having a conversation. And it's, it's a comedic conversation. And what we'll find out is there are two guys sitting in a car waiting to abduct someone. They'll abduct someone, and then they're never seen again. So it's almost like... Tarantino-esque. Interesting. In, in the dialogue yeah. that they're having, and then, they, then they'll just disappear. There's these characters that are all over the place. It's actually quite hilarious, uh, whether they're henchmen or kidnappers. Um, <laughs> the, the comedy in this is, is so... It's dark. Uh, for example, there's one scene where, uh, like I said, his son dies. So they have to go into the morgue and see his son, and they're in the morgue, and they pull the cadaver out. And they have to raise the cadaver up so they can get a look at him. And there's the guy in the mortician who's, like, squeaking this pedal to make the thing rise. And it goes on for, like, four minutes. It's just like, er, eat, er, eat, er, eat, er, eat, er, eat. And this is in the middle of a so-called serious movie. Or there's, like, a scene where this henchman is talking randomly about fantasy football with, with his character. Like, these seemingly pointless characters that are just side characters are developed with these random comedy bits, and it's all interspersed with this action. So 
I found this movie to be quite entertaining, and I honestly had I didn't expect what I got at all. So, had, have you heard about this movie, Cold Pursuit? No, I hadn't heard much about it. Um, I had heard about the Liam Nielsen Neeson uh, controversy, but uh, no, I, I mean it's. I think that these films, when you hit them right, they can be really good. Mm-hmm. You know, films about an issue or a topic that's not funny and it's made to be funny. But you have to do it well, because when it fails, it fails miserably. Yeah, and that's what I would say. This movie knows what it is, and it knows what it's trying to go for, and it does that really well. The dark comedy really works, because let me be clear, there's murder going on, there's drugs, there's drug overdoses. The center of the story has to deal with a gang war and how Liam Neeson's Everyman starts this gang war and gets caught up in the middle of it. And there's lots of, like I said, Tarantino-esque violence and sort of dialogue. Um, But the last shot of the movie, I won't give it away... But it's we've had this serious climax, and then the last shot of the movie is is something completely hilarious. You're laughing as the credits roll. One other thing I forgot to mention, every time someone dies in this movie, the screen will cut to black, and then the person's name will pop up, and there'll be like a cross that they died. Every single time someone dies in this movie, it happens. So it has sort of like that strange comedic Sounds touch like to it. Sounds like Hunger Games. Yeah, everyone has, <laughs> everyone has this a nickname because it has to do with gangsters, so it's... Uh, they kind of make jokes about how all mobsters have nicknames. Hmm. It really is a comedy, and it's just not what I expected at all. If you watch the trailer, that's not what you're going to expect. Um, so I appreciated how this movie knew what it wanted to be, and it delivered on it. And I ended up giving it a 7 out of 5. 7 and 7.5 okay. out of 10. So all right. I would recommend seeing Cold Pursuit as shocking as it is uh, to say that. I did not expect I'd be saying that. So. Yeah, I'll have to add it to the list. Um, I think that's always interesting when you when a filmmaker or a studio puts out a trailer that's led to you to believe something is like this mm-hmm. and it isn't well, and it's failed bad for some films in the past yeah. but it sounds like this time it worked well i think they were almost trying to use that oh it's another liam neeson yeah. vengeance movie and to subvert people's expectations They're like oh here's another liam neeson vengeance movie and then you go and watch it and it's nothing like that at all so it's almost like the filmmaker was aware that that's what people would be thinking hmm. so go check it out Anyways, moving on to, uh, I guess you could call it our feature review, since me and Evan uh, both saw this. I feel like we've kind of gotten away from both of them. rarity. Yeah, these days. Um, But it's Glass, uh, the M. Night Shyamalan movie. Uh, The plot summary from IMDb. Security guard David Dunn uses his supernatural abilities to track Kevin Wendell Crumb, a disturbed man who has 24 personalities. Uh, this is, of course, M. Night Shyamalan's uh, the, the end of the Ch- Unbreakable trilogy, uh, which started in 2000 with Unbreakable and was continued with Split in 2016. Uh, of course, we didn't know this movie was going to be the end of a trilogy. We find that out at the end of Split that this is the same universe that happened in Unbreakable 16 years prior. Um, so there was the little twist there. But after that was revealed in Split, I was really looking forward to this movie. Um, because I thought it had a setup to be something really cool. So, Evan, what were what are some of your first initial? What do you think of first when when you saw Glass? Well, I, I first I agree. I have to agree. I think the nature of the trilogy is cool. I mean, I I I, I gotta at least start by saying I really liked Unbreakable. Um, you know, years and years ago, and yeah, again, I liked Split as well, and had no idea that this was going to be connected. So um, now we really are bringing together all three characters from the two films and. Um, what I, I did like from the previous two films that carried over here were their performances. Um, I think that, I think that 
Kevin, I think obviously James McAvoy, you have to do a good job to really pull off a character with 24 different personalities. Mm -hmm. So I think he does a great job. I think, um, I think David Dunn, I think, you know, Bruce Willis does a good job and, and I really like, uh, Elijah Price or Glass, uh, Samuel L. Jackson. I think he's a good villain, and I think that his motivations on what he wants and what he's trying to accomplish, I think that it makes him a little bit more of a of an in depth villain. Mm -hmm. He has. Uh, he, he, it's not as much, this film's not as much about good or evil, but about the truth mm -hmm. and making sure that people are aware that uh, supervillains and superheroes exist, mm -hmm. right? I mean, that, that, that was his point in, the, in Unbreakable as well. Mm -hmm. it, it, he was committing these horrible, horrible acts, but it was to find a, a superhero. Yeah, I, I like how this world that M. Night has created, it feels really grounded, right? It feels like, um, it feels like it's 100% in our world. It doesn't feel like the Avengers, or it doesn't feel like Guardians of the Galaxy, where it's this crazy superhero world where anything can happen. It feels like our everyday world where there's these people with extraordinary abilities that just live within it. Yeah. And I think that it's a cool story set against that backdrop. It's a realistic take on superheroes, I think. Yeah. And I, I so I really appreciate that. Um, also, the overall idea of sort of comic books being lore and actual, like, history and that superheroes and supervillains are real, and that's kind of what Elijah's trying to push all the time. Like, hey, it's in this comic book. That means it's true, you know? And people are like, well, it's just a comic book, or uh, Sarah Paulson's character is like, you know, uh, it's it's kind of a comic book or whatever, you know? Or at least we think so uh, in the beginning. Um, but yeah, he, he, he's trying to... He's trying to say these characters were written into comics because somebody somewhere saw this happening. Right. And that's, and so they It's like a newspaper exist. rather than fiction. And I think that's what makes him as a villain, again, a, a kind of an in-depth villain. He's, and, he's very dynamic. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's a good, he's a good sort of foil with uh, Kevin, who is sort of like this straightforward villain, you know, who's kind of like, he's just like, he's got the beast. The beast is just bad. He just wants to kill and hunt and, and you know cause blood and he's just like a, he's a bad guy and to have samuel jackson who's this more dynamic and calculating villain uh to combine them together it's almost like the joker with bane you know in yeah. a certain way and and i do think we do start to peel back the layers of each of these characters that that was one thing that um that they really tried to accomplish here so in the middle of the film i mean they're all imprisoned in this institution and I think it kind of is a bit slow mm -hmm. in the middle of the film. Um, it, we start out well, and I think we end well um, to some degree, but it's it's a little slow, and they spend a lot of time on character development. And I think that's fine, and I think it's, it's interesting to peel back the layers of these characters, but I, I wondered if, I don't know, if there was a different way or a different story that M. Night could have developed to bring them together rather than have them in this institution. Yeah, and that, that was honestly something I wrote down. I, I put it, lacked thrills, felt kind of boring at times. Yeah. Um, and I, I was wondering how they were going to end up bringing all these characters together. You know, we have these two different movies, and I was like, so how are you going to bring these seemingly random people together? Um, and they did it pretty straightforward. Like, oh, we're just going to lock them all. You know, the confrontation between uh, the overseer, David Dunn, and... The horde happens pretty quick in the movie, you know, much faster than I thought it was gonna. And then they get thrown into this facility together. So I agree that felt kind of lazy, but at the same time, it was kind of cool to like see all of them sitting 
you know, in the chairs next to each other and Sarah Paulson, you know, sitting there uh, sort of questioning them. Yeah, um, I mean, they definitely, you know, M. Night w- definitely was trying to make his own superhero movie. And rather than a ton of action, he focused more on characters. And to your point of this being grounded, the fi- film feels so grounded because for a good poor part of it, we've got a psychiatrist trying to convince these people that they don't actually have powers and yeah. it's not real. So he definitely was did something different. And you're right, we didn't get maybe the action you would expect out of a film like this. Yeah. A couple other things I like before we get into sort of some of the things I didn't. I like the idea of sort of destiny and fate that has to do with Mr. Glass. You know, it, how he's he's like, I created these and I brought these two together. Uh, you know, I'll put a spoiler warning at the end of this, but he thinks that he brought it together because he killed uh, Kevin's dad because he was on the same train as Bruce Willis. So it only took so long, but he thinks that he created both these guys. I tend to think that the question still up in the air is, is Mr. Glass super at all? I mean, I, I, th- I know they try and say that superheroes are real, but isn't it possible that fate just happened and it just, if you wait long enough, then something's going to happen eventually? Well, I think that the argument is that he's a genius. Yeah. He's smarter than everybody else, and that's his, his, that's his villain, that's his power, yeah. is that he's, you know. Because I, I don't think M. Night leaves it too ambiguous. Like, we're supposed to think that there actually has superheroes and superhuman abilities, right? I mean, it, oh, absolutely. it's not left open no. to interpretation. No, and it is, it is in the begin, in the yeah. middle. You, yeah. you, you know, and they spend so much time focusing on characters, and you even start to wonder, like, wait. Are they just crazy? Yeah, and I like that <laughs> you were thinking about that. Um, so there were things I liked about the middle of the film, but I just, yeah, I thought it was slow. Yeah, it, it wasn't the most exciting thing in the world. It was so grounded. One other thing I really liked, I love the use of color in this movie. All three of the villains and the characters very clearly have a color associated with them. Yellow for uh, the Horde, green for the Overseer, and purple for Mr. Glass. Um, and it's not just on them. Like if you, That scene I'm talking about when they're all sitting and being question they're all wearing those colors um the 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 people close to them whether it's david's done son uh mr glass's mom or the girl that uh the horde captured at the end of the movie when they're in the train station they're all wearing green orange uh and purple the lights in the comic book store the shade yep lights the shades in mr glass's house uh his pants uh of the horde are yellow david dunn's coat his kid's coat is like that so i like that the m night used color to sort of differentiate between the three characters i thought that was a really sort of cool thing they did at least visually yeah yeah and what what i think i liked about it uh you talk about differentiating is how he almost made a point to show that these characters aren't maybe all that different after all. Mm-hmm. Um, and and how they had different things happen to them that led them to be the way that they are. And that's kind of what Mr. Glass is saying. He doesn't really view the Overseer as an enemy. I mean, he is. he's like, he's the superhero, he's the bad guy. But, you know, he's trying to be like, we are all a different breed of person. Yeah. You know? So, you mentioned the middle was slow, and you said you liked the beginning and the end. I actually felt like the twist at the end was kind of, and the ending was, the climax was kind of a letdown, personally. So, there's two twists mm-hmm. at the end, and I thought that the first one was meh, but then I thought that the double down on it, the second twist was good. So Explain, sp- explain. Yeah. So, once we find out that Sarah Paulson's character isn't a psychiatrist, he actually works for a secret agency that's trying to prevent the world from knowing about supers, she's concerned of where things would go in the world. Yeah. Um, 
and you know Elijah Price Glass is trying to do the opposite. So then we find we find out. Yeah, that that was her motivation. She knows they have powers. She doesn't. She she knows they do, and she's trying to prevent that from getting out. I thought that was a little soft and just kind of like, Ugh. Yeah. it's an idea you could expand on more, but you don't have time. You're at the end of the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but I but I did like the secondary twist where we realized that Glass all along accomplished what he wanted to. And that wasn't to take this fight, as he talked about, between the Horde and Overseer to this big building. It was to have the fight happen outside the institution, videotape it, and send it all out to the public so people could know and see. So I liked that second one. And so you had to kind of have the first one to have the second one. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but yeah, the first one I thought was a little soft. But I did like how they wrapped it. Yeah, I just I guess like the final confrontation between the Horde and the Overseer was just kind of lacking to me. It didn't feel like this was the end and the big climax to three films. Like it was literally like two guys pushing each other around. I mean, it just and I, and I guess that goes back to Mike yeah. trying to create like a grounded movie and not have like you know the horde jump a hundred thousand feet in the air and grow forearms and you know david dunn whipping out tights and a cape I, I mean i guess i guess that that goes along with the sort of tone of the movie it just didn't feel like a big enough climax to the end of a trilogy to me i mean it just was kind of a letdown i mean mr glass is like laying on the pavement twitching when well, that's they, going on well they so, all three die yeah yeah, I mean they all die. Yeah, it's, it's a, impactful, and, and yeah. you know, and I like the last shot. I like, like I said, I mentioned the train station when the three sort of, uh, you know, at a met, train station. Yeah, yeah, at a train station. So I like how that was kind of brought in, and how the movie ended. You know, the idea that now superheroes are out in the open. I agree, that was cool. I guess I just felt like I was expecting more of a climax. Well, I and I, I think again, I think it's born out of what M Night's trying to do. He's not necessarily trying to have a good versus bad uh, storyline here. He's trying to hit the the goal of the villain all along is to make them known, make their presence known, and that's achieved yeah. even without taking that to the building where we were expecting to get some sort of huge fight. Yeah, I guess I was looking forward to that. Big I fight. think I was too, <laughs> but once I realized why it didn't happen and the plan all along from Glass, it made sense to me. Um, but one one criticism I did have was. I, I felt so so the, the the film as you had said made a point to have each character each of the three main characters have like their own counterpart or their own advocate mm-hmm. and I felt like uh, we know the mom and glass that's great we know the son and and Bruce Willis's character that's great but I felt like like I was a little surprised like this girl is just like yeah. like she's just this guy kidnapped her killed her friends and almost killed her and she's like she's supporting him yeah. i felt like they there was a few that that was odd to me and i think that m night took a little bit of a liberty in trying to make it so that it, it went it went the way he wanted he tried to make it sort of like a stockholm syndrome type thing where she yeah. like loves kevin and she wants you know the, the normal guy and they try to make him like a good guy and I, I agree that was a little bit forced and actually i think having the the counterparts in general were kind of forced into the plot yeah. it's like m night had these other characters that he didn't just want to leave lingering out in the other three, two movies. So I can see why he had to do it, but it, it didn't, it did feel a little bit forced, I thought. Don't you feel like he's the kind of guy who never just does like the easy, obvious thing? Yeah. Like what would be easy and obvious here is to have some epic battle at this building and that's what probably the audiences want, but he's in his own head about how he wants this to play out, and that's why I think we got something different. Yeah, and in a way, I will you know defend him a little bit because M Night Shyamalan. What's the thing that he's become known as as a filmmaker? Twist. The twist. So he feels this pressure and expectations from people to have some sort of elaborate 
you know, twist to subvert your expectations and take it in a new direction. So I guess I don't blame him for that. Um, but like I said, I felt like the ending was a little lacking. How would you rank this movie compared to the other two? Oh, man, that's tough. Um, you know, I'd, I'd actually have to, to go back because I uh, I, I, I think that... Uh, I, I kind of think that it shared some comparisons uh, between to this film to Unbreakable in the ending. Didn't you feel like the ending of... Uh, of Unbreakable was also kind of anticlimactic. Yeah, for sure. It's because, just them like standing in the room. Yeah, yeah, and that's when we learn about Glass's motivations. It's yeah. like there's no fight between Glass and the unders overseer, the Undertaker, the overseer. There was no fight or big battle. It was him finding out about Glass, finding out he had committed all these acts of terrorism to find Bruce Willis's character, uh, uh, David Dunn, and I and I, I think I, I noticed that comparison right away. Like it was a little bit more of um. I don't know how you would describe it, but yeah, you're right. There's some anticlimactic kind of ending there, but but it's about the message, not about the action. And I think that carries through the whole film. For me, Split would be my favorite by far. I just I just think that that's that was the most entertaining movie just by itself. I would put Unbreakable second, and actually, I would yeah. put this Glass movie last. I might do the same actually, um, but but I, I all in all, I thought it was you know I thought it was uh, I'd heard it was getting just panned by critics, and I liked it more than than that i think i liked it more than the than the critics too but uh it's not a great movie i guess i was hoping for a little yeah. bit more i'd say but what, what what would you end up giving it out of 10 i was a, a kind of in between a six and a seven and i ended up being generous and i went with the seven okay i went the other way i went with yeah. the six so it sounds like i would be at like a six five i think me too actually I think generally so uh good not great uh i think it's better than than the critics so i mean i guess we're critics but the, the real professional critics would say i think they're being a little harsh on it they tend to do that with that nice Shyamalan and again i think that's because their expectations are so high yep. with him so that's glass we both would say it's worth a watch um i'm glad this trilogy happened that was that's one thing i would say yeah. so check it out anyways that's all we got for you here today um Academy Awards coming up in a couple weeks, so be sure to tune into that. We'll be back with that. We're going to keep watching some movies. It's sort of the slow time, you know, after the Academy Awards here in, in winter, or the, the end, trail end of winter. So we got Captain Marvel, right? Yeah, April, I think. So okay. it's, it's, we still got a little bit before the big releases are going to come out. Uh, but a big year of movies coming. I saw the Frozen 2 trailer came out, so that's a big one for the kids. Uh, Dumbo. You know, yeah, Shaw and Hobbs, a lot of those Disney movies coming out. Of course, Avengers Endgame, uh, the new stuff, the last Star Wars is coming out this year so it's gonna be a big year of movies and we'll be here to to follow along every step of the way so until next time we'll see you at the movies <laughs>